podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking to Donald DeVret of Roslyn about school taxes. Don wrote an article in a recent edition of the Roslyn Times. The headline was, School Systems Are the Root of Long Island's Evils. And although he didn't write the headline, but he wrote quite a scathing expose of some of the issues that he's passionate about. And I'll quote a paragraph here. Uh, Don says, the system pads payrolls and voter rolls, as well as imposing onerous costs, helping to perpetuate its stranglehold on the island and its residents, aside from the needless and outlandish bloat of the headcount, health insurance, and pension benefits that are exceedingly lavish and almost unknown in the private sector for almost any other industry or discipline. There are gym teachers whose total compensation approaches that of a Harvard professor. School superintendents leave with hefty pensions, meaning that we're on the hook for decades to come. Don, let's get into it. What is your issue with schools? Thank you for having me on, first and foremost. Uh, I think this is an issue that needs a lot of attention and a lot of scrutiny because a lot of people are just sleepwalking through this. The first thing to walking us through this issue is to dissuade people of the idea or the myth that we have good schools on this island. This is a cultural totem that's been nurtured for quite some time. If you look at the data, in essence, there are no good schools. Inextricably, you tell me the wealth of the parents, and I can predict the SAT score of the child. This data has been proven over and over again. doesn't matter what part of country you're from. Um, the outcomes generally are linked inextricably to the wealth of the parents. If you need local proof of this, every year the Long Island Patch or Newsday will run a list of uh, the best-performing schools, linking them top to bottom. If you stare at that list for 15 seconds, you will realize you're looking at a list, a stepped list of income by district with almost perfect symmetry. So it's not as if Great Neck or Roslyn has better lab equipment than Hempstead or Roosevelt. It's just that the poorest schools do worse than the richer schools. And that is really due to the economics of the matter, not the performance of the teachers. It has nothing to do with the what you're lavishing on the district itself. What this means, if you put this together with our regressive tax system that punishes the poor and the underprivileged so much in this county, people in Hempstead are literally paying double for less than nothing. Based on their income, they may be paying 25% of their income to the school taxes, while someone arrives in a great neck may only be paying 5 or 10%, and they're being shortchanged. You have a system that expropriates the wealth of these poor people to support the bloat and the headcount and the superintendents and the teachers and the extra districts. And then when these school systems underperform because of the structure they set, they ask for more resources to combat the problem. Just this week, Newsday came out with an article uh, that the state had earmarked a few districts uh, for special targeting. And what do you know? If you look at the list, it's the usual suspects. Um, it's 2020, how long are we going to keep up the charade that there are good schools and there are bad schools when really this is linked to the basic economics of the community that these schools are actually in? There are 124 school districts on Long Island with uh, 656 schools. $1.28 billion is spent just on administrative costs, according to Newsday. We pay the highest taxes perhaps in the nation, or at least in New York State, for school taxes. How is it that the United States ranks 17th in the world? So 
what's going on here? We pour more money into education, but get poorer results. This is a mirror image of your economy at large in America today. It's the same dynamic that you have in healthcare. We pay two or three times more than any other nation, and we get 75% of the results, if that. A lot of what goes on in business today, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, is simple rent sinking, not production. Uh, and that's an unfortunate thing. When you look how pharma can charge rents and just raise the price of insulin to the point where a person with diabetes can't afford it, even though this is a product that was invented in 1921, that gives you an idea of the power that they have and to capture government and regulators to uh, get things their own way regardless of their value. Uh, this is a common thread throughout the economy. It's unfortunate. At this time of the year, school boards are sharpening their pencils, quote unquote, <laughs> and uh, they're formulating their their budget f for a vote in May and to commend at least uh, Cuomo for putting a cap, a 2% cap on school budgets. But that's a misnomer because the 2% goes to the county assessor's office. The 2% turns out ultimately to be around 6%. Then we have what I would call a surcharge with bonds, which make up for the loss of the capital lines in the school budgets. So now we're talking about perhaps an average of 10% increase in our school taxes every year. So that 2% that, that the school boards promote to their communities, oh, we've sharpened our pencil, we've held the line on, on our budget. You're not paying 2% more in succeeding years, you're paying 10% more. Well, there's a great joke about the budget. They parade this idea every so often that you actually have a voice in these things. You're not voting on the budget. Most of the costs are fixed. You're not voting on teachers' salaries. You're not voting on the value of the health plans. If the cost of a health plan goes up double digits every year, as it has for the rest of us, you're going to pay that regardless of the 2% cap. So you've got an automatic pay accelerator <laughs> built in without even negotiating a contract that goes through without anyone tapping the brakes. For most of these teachers uh, at the supers, they're paying, you're paying uh, 75 to 80% of their healthcare costs. And at the same time, your wages are stagnant. You're covering the increased costs of your own healthcare as well as the teachers. And you're funding 10 to 12% of their pensions. I don't see how this is sustainable or even equitable. And the great hypocrisy with this is this system has been created and promulgated and protected by people who claim to be the most progressive and enlightened people in all the world. And the fact is they are not pro-labor, they are anti-labor. They expropriate rents and wealth from people who have no business doing this to. And those are sharp words, but the fact is that it's the reality that we're living with. Someone's got to put the brakes on this stuff. I don't know where it begins, but maybe a podcast like this starts it. Got to have the conversation. You cite an example of a high school gym teacher that makes more and has better benefits than a Harvard pro professor. Yes, he's in prison now for abusing a young girl, I believe. The high school gym yes, teacher. Yes, yeah. He was in Medford. Uh, the article's in Newsday. You can look that up. Uh, someone looked up his salary. And uh, again, with his benefits, all in, he's getting paid as much as a Harvard professor. And a teacher can serve time in jail and still receive compensation during that period of time. Uh, I have no doubt that his union will do that for him, but I don't know about that particular case, to be honest. So, so we have these, quote, fixed costs that Correct. we have no control That you have no vote on, no. The state mandates which ensure 
that uh, this will be paid, that'll be paid, that the compensation for teachers, which uh, uh, I consider to be price fixing. Every school district will look at another school district and say, well, they got a six, seven, eight percent increase in their in their contract. So we compare favorably uh, with Manhasset or Great Neck or oh, Syosset. <laughs> and then we have superintendents that are making six hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year with benefits and yes, a golden parachute clause. Absolutely. And uh you don't need 125 superintendents. There are plenty of. There was no other place in the United States that works a school system like this. Um, at the same time, we should remember, lest anybody accuse us of teacher bashing, which is a favorite thing. There are teachers out there in that country who are not who are making thirty-two thousand dollars a year. They have to buy supplies for their own students because their districts aren't funded, uh, because these areas are so impoverished. Uh, these are terrible things. You can go overboard in the opposite direction, as we have here. But again, it, I hate to say this, but no one really, you can't, in an economy where the cost of healthcare has strip mined the wealth out of so many people, where wage stagnation has been a fact of life for 30 years, you've got people on autopilot with wages and benefits increasing while everyone else is ecstatic. I don't see how this is sustainable for Long Island or who would advocate such a thing. The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with Donald DeVritt of Roslyn, and we're talking about school taxes. This May, we will not only be looking at passing school budgets and uh, in some districts improving bonds, which I think is another strategy, is let, let's have a bond vote outside the context of a budget vote so fewer and fewer people will know about it, and the, <laughs> uh, the chosen few are guaranteed to show up to vote for these bonds, which the mantra is we need new roofs, we need new boilers, and now the new mantra is security for the schools. <laughs> How many roofs, boilers, and security? I, I'm not arguing security, but again, if it's a Christmas list that we would like all this, it's typically what they get as opposed to what is needed. Well, as H.L. Mencken said, uh, the job of a politician is to Amp up the fears of the uh, people that most of them are unjustified. I'm just paraphrasing there. This thing about security, to their credit, uh, two of the major school unions in the country just urged the government to stop doing, uh, sh you know, shooter drills. You're uh, scaring the heck out of the kids. Chances are dollars to donuts. You have a better chance of hitting the mega millions than getting involved in a school shooting. As reprehensible as these acts are, you can't make a fetish out of it and do it in every single school in the country. So the security aspect is another way of ramping up fear. And it's what politicians do. It's what people do to leverage your fear to get what they want. And it's this, again, the school system is doing this too in that they figure the more you spend on children, the better the education must be. It's, it's all for the kids, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's right. And who's going to deny the children? And again, this is a fetish. There's no truth in it. And you can't just send your kids to school and say, okay, go teach them. It's, it's up to the parents, too, to give them a sense of intellectual curiosity. You know, my parents took me to the theater, to museums, to do all sorts of things. Today, with the internet and all these other sources of information, schools no longer have a monopoly on data. Back in the old days, you had the Little Red Schoolhouse. That was the only way people could learn. Chances are there was one literate person in the town. Today, you're suffuse, you're surrounded by information and data and learning about the world. So it's, you know, you have to put this in a certain perspective as to what the meaning of an education is today, especially with K through 12. 
I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's really we're, we're putting so much pressure on these kids at uh, such a young age today. It's it's really unfortunate. Let's look at the makeup of school boards. Typically, the school boards have a backing, and although you have to do a lot of digging to see whether the unions actually are financing some of these campaigns, but a free source of support are the PTA moms who just cannot get enough money into a budget to support the agenda of their kids while they are in school. Well, it's a good thing they don't work for the Defense Department. (laughs) (laughs) Where would we be then? (laughs) It always happens that when someone joins one of these things, they immediately turn into advocacy instead of oversight. Uh, That's natural. Police always want more police on the force. We just opened up a new precinct in Manhasset for no good reason whatsoever. This is the lowest crime district in the area. I'm not going to get mugged by an accountant, okay? And we put up a whole new precinct that was shut down for a while. It was one of the few good things Mangano did. He shut the precinct down to save money because the cost of law enforcement is as off the roof as uh, education is in this county. And local people who were very influential forced them to reopen it again. And now all I've got is an army of SUVs patrolling Plandome Road and looking for something to do. But that's what happens. With all of this money being poured into uh, our school districts, how is it uh, affecting, how is it impacting the economy here of Long Island? It's affecting us economically and it's affecting us socially. Um, Let's get to the social part first. We're running a system with the acquiescence of these progressors in the union, that is essentially a caste system for students. These kids are going to be branded for life by the district they came from. And look, when I was looking for a house myself, when I first had my two girls, I moved to the Herricks district because it had the good schools. The quality of their education, I assume, was no better than a lot of other districts, but we wanted that that cachet. And believe me, when you apply for college, the admissions people see Herrick's a great neck on this, and that carries a lot of cachet, and it may carry over the top as far as an admission is concerned because they get sucked into it too. Someone from a lesser school district who might be equally bright or even smarter or a better academic achiever may get shut out. So we've created this pecking order, which is really <laughs> grossly inequitable and just unjust is the way I would put it. It's, it's just not right. Aside from the bloat that it creates by all this multiplicity of uh, districts that add to the cost, you have this social uh, factor that places kids in, in a social sphere they may never get out of or escape for the rest of their lives. And if there was one district and this would, was erased, those kids might have a better chance in life. You have a background in finance. How does it impact Long Island's economy? The fact is high property taxes have impacted retail, it impacts housing, it impacts building development. Because of the way that we tax, especially on the commercial side, now you need an IDA to hand out givebacks to make out, make up the difference because we're taking from one side and getting from the other. Uh, and I don't have to tell you how well the IDA is run, but that's another subject for another day, I think. Um, but again, if you'd start deflating these costs, your economy will normalize. Uh, You're getting empty storefronts. It's not just from Amazon. It's from the way that these stores are taxed because these are commercial properties. You know, in the Long Island system, we tax commercial properties even higher than we do single-family residences. As crazy as that may sound, looking at your own tax bill, but there there is a higher price to be paid for these things. And it's affecting our local economy. It affects buildings, office space, manufacturing even. There's no manufacturing base anymore. Nobody could possibly afford to. 
And again, it's not just China. It's the way that we've set this thing up that was structured to fail because of the core system. And there are a few people, notably the civil service mostly, that are getting the lion's share of this law just at the expense of every other factor of the economy on this island from Montauk to Great Neck. People are moving out by the tens of thousands to more affordable states. This is another issue that really gets me is that the older being forced out because once they reach their uh, retirement age and they're no longer prime earners, the tax uh, burden forces them out of communities that they've lived in for years. I want to tell you an anecdote. I was at a tax protest meeting or tax grievance meeting that legislator Ellen Birnbaum had scheduled. And there was a woman in the audience looking very disheveled. Uh, she was there by herself. I assume she was widowed. She asked the assessor uh, who was there to discuss how to grieve her taxes, what she could do about the rising taxes in her community. Because what happened was younger people were moving in with a lot of money and they were fixing up their homes, turning them into mini chateaus, redoing everything, and the assessments kept going up. She couldn't afford to make those improvements, but yet because the way we do assessment and the comps are being done that way, her tax were going up exponentially and she's on fixed income. And the person from the assessor's office says, well, don't worry about it, honey. You'll be able to sell your house for a lot more money seeing that it appraises for a lot more and it's gonna comp more. Now, this woman doesn't wanna move. This is the only community she knows. She's in her 70s. Okay, this is where her friends are, where, you know, she has nothing left. She has nothing left but this area. And you sacrifice this, tell her, don't worry, you'll cash out, you'll move to Florida with a lot of money. I mean, uh, that seems pretty heartless to me. Your house is only worth what it's worth when you sell it. Well, that's, well, to a certain extent, uh, you know, the cheapest house in the best neighborhood, that might drag the prices up a little bit. But the main thing for this woman was that, Really, she just could not afford these escalating taxes anymore. She's in her 70s. What is she going to do, get another job? I mean, it's just crazy. But again, there's deliberate. The other side of this is that the young can't afford to move in. And you've got people blocking the construction of apartments where young people can afford to because they're afraid their quality of life will be affected. You can't freeze your island in amber. And aside from the taxation and the, this, this reluctance to build and to expand, you're going to cripple the economy at one point or another. It doesn't look that way now, but many, many different ways. Take it from me because you see this creeping in in so many ways that you don't actually see. At one point in the future, it will come to bite you. And people are just not aware of it. When is this going to happen? I mean, we, we year after year, we're, we're looking at rising costs here on Long Island. Uh, RxR has built a huge complex down in Glen Cove. I think the smallest single apartment is $1.3 million. The younger generation, where, how are they going to afford living in a $1.3 million apartment? This is a dynamic that's being played out all over the country, especially in California. It'd be a worthy subject for another podcast. I hate to buy into these easily described uh, battles, but it's the boomers versus the young. And what happens is the boomers don't want more building and more development going on in their areas because they know the lack of supply drives the price of their homes up. I mean, my house, surprisingly, is worth over a million bucks. I never thought I would see that. And I'm kind of happy about it. But at the same token, there were younger people. The 40-year-old Donald Dara cannot move into his house today. That's the problem. And there are the people who refuse to build any, add any source supply. That drives the value of their housing up. 
and this again, this is something that's happening all over the country. San Francisco used to be one of the, one of the most beautiful cities in the country, and now they've got a homeless problem because they refused and to expand. And again, it's like the people on the school boards, the people on the local district councils are going to keep things just the way they are because that's the way they like it. And they're the most vocal, and the people who live on the streets have no voice. It's this is being played out in Rhode Island. This is being you look at anywhere. This is being played out all over the country. And unless we stop procreating, I don't know what you're going to do about it because people need a place to live. Another example is uh, I saw a stat that New York City created about 17,000 jobs last year, and we only built about 6,000 units. Where are these people going to live? Uh, you know, you can't grow the economy or expect expansion and more wealth if you just keep the spigots closed. So you you got to let out the belt loops a little bit, little bit if you're going to do this. The podcast is That's Interesting. I'm Bill Moser, and I'm talking with Donald Durrett of Roslyn. And we're talking about school taxes and the cost of living here on Long Island. We're joined with Steve Warshaw. Steve is a real estate agent in the Glenhead area, and Agatha Nadell, who is a community activist also in the area. Steve, uh, comment on what Don said about real estate taxes here. Well, one of the things that was said to me recently is, I'm also the president of the Gold Coast Business Association, and one of the things that was said by one of our members, which was real interesting, um, in Seacliff, she said, "I own, I own, I own the, I own the building here. She has a business here. I own the, I don't live here. I own the building, so I pay a lot of taxes, which obviously is true, but I don't vote. I don't vote. I, I can't vote on the school board." on the school budget. I can't, I can't vote at any local elections, but I pay my fair share. So there's an inequity there that probably should be addressed somehow. There's a lot of changes that have to happen, you know, with relation with, uh, related to what Don just said. And we all know that, and everybody agrees to that. But nobody wants to stand up and do anything about it. Everybody says, well, if you push us to the wall, we'll do it. But you know, we pay our taxes to government. Nobody held their, uh, held a gun to anyone's head to say, hey, you um, uh, must work for the people. You took that job on your own. And quite frankly, to quote another quote that I did not make up, the, the, <laughs> the, needs, the, the needs of the, in this particular case, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one or the few. And the needs of the people is what they signed up for. And they're not, they, they are all putting, they are all putting party and individual needs before their constituents. Um, and they use the excuse, well, I don't know what my constituents wants. Well, they are, they know what we want. They don't want to do it. It's exactly what Don said. They don't want change. I don't know how to force this change on people. I don't know how to explain this change other than explain it. But I think more conversations like this where people admit to solve a problem, you have to admit that you have a problem. Okay? If you don't admit that you have a problem, you're never going to solve it. Okay, I want to get across the street. There's a lot of traffic. My first step is I've decided I need to take a step across the street. No one wants to take the step yet, but the, before you even do that, you have to admit that there's traffic in the road and that there's a street to cross. And we, we haven't even gotten there with the politicians. They are in denial mode and in, in BS mode and thinking that we're all going to buy the song that they're singing and people are a lot smarter than that. So the only thing I would say is when you, when you, when you have the opportunity to go vote, 
That's what you have to do. And, and like my mother says, anytime you see someone in office who's been in office, no matter who they are, vote them out and vote the new person in. It's the only way. You do that for two or three cycles, but everybody has to do it. That's the key. Everyone has to do it. If they don't do it, nothing we talk about will ever change, except it will become more difficult for the middle class to live on Long Island, and who knows where that'll go. My issue with politicians is that uh, they make a lot of promises, get me into office, but they never ask me subsequently, what do I think, what do I want? They're supposed to represent me, but they don't represent me until the next election, when again, they'll pander to... True. And what we should do is get very angry that we're paying their salaries, that they work for us, and they're not working for us. Yeah, there's a small level of people that do get angry, and they do go out and vote. And and there's a ton of people who get angry and don't get out and vote. Those are the people that need to get out and vote. If those people get out, problem solved. End of story. Because there's more of us out there. But unless they get out and go into the machine and pull the lever, nobody knows. Don, you want to comment on that? Well, unfortunately, uh, both parties are co-opted by the same system, so it does get hard to be a change. There really is not a dime's worth of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats on Long Island because they are all linked. There's a, a Russian term they used in communist times called the nomenklatura, and what that means is that you have this organization of party officials. There's only really one party. It's the no-bid law firms, it's the unions, it's the Long Island Association, and they're all on the same page. And no matter who's in office, it's like the Romans in old times. They never changed the statue of the emperor. They just switched the head, and that was it. (laughs) So to get someone who's going to be really in favor of doing something meaningful, they've got to be really committed to the future of the island and getting us off this train that's going to lead us to a very, very bad situation. Um, look, I'm turning 68 this year. I don't have much of a dog in the hunt. So either I wind up moving or I wind up in Beth David's cemetery. So I don't expect to, <laughs> to see anything from this, from my advocacy. But maybe someone will take up the cudgels and try to do something about it. So. And it, it's small changes. You had talked earlier about making a change. It's And do we see the change? You see the change now, but it's happening so subtly in small increments but it's happening. If you can you, you can stem that tide by making one little change and then and then growing from that. You can't your expectations can't be yay big. They have to be small little steps. You can't get to Z without going through B, C, D, E, and F, and so forth. And I think that's the only answer to the problem. Well, one incremental change you could do, just quick and dirty, is just eliminate the portion of the school tax that funds the pensions. Let the teachers fund their own pensions 100%. There is no need especially in this economy, you're, you know, you're not imagining the inequality in the economy. It's been going on for 30 years now. Yeah. So you don't need an exalted class of public servant that has to have their, their pensions funded by the public, especially when people can't even afford to fund their own IRA. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the outrage of this is unbelievable. So if you want to just strip that away in one stroke, you might see a nice drop in your property tax, and you might see the island start to become competitive again without giving out freebies to companies that want to locate here. You don't need it. We could survive on our own merits. We have a lot to offer here. We're near the greatest city in the world. We've got beaches. We've got great restaurants. We've got the ocean. <laughs> we've got all sorts of good stuff. You've got access to great world-class airports to take you to Europe, wherever you want to go. We're never going to starve. 
you could succeed on our own merits and by altering the tax structure that we have and make this a better place for everybody. And it's, it's just, it's the right thing to do. Agatha Nadell is in the studio with us. Agatha was active with her PTA. Agatha addressed the issue of your experience working inside the school system at the time. When I joined the PTA, I joined it because uh, my husband and myself were alums of the of the school district. So, and we moved back here. I was only out of here for a few years, um, but we moved back here because I love the area. And so, when I joined, I did it uh, for my kids and for the fact that I loved the school so much. And what I found, and again, it could just be the dynamics of the area when. I was growing up in uh, Glenhead in the surrounding areas. It was very blue collar. Of course, it was a, a small percentage of very wealthy, but most people were doing fine, but money was not unlimited. It was a little bit of a culture shock for me when I volunteered and put in all these hours with the PTA. And I had, there were many people that I worked with that were wonderful, and there were just as many that were not so wonderful. There was a strong sense of unlimited money, okay? Spend, spend, spend for this, that, and whatever. Redo this, redo that, raise money for this, raise money for that, that quite frankly, I I know the value of a dollar. So uh, everything that I've gotten in my life, I've had to work hard for. So I don't believe in that mentality. So it was shocking to me. I had to deal with with some other people in trying to prioritize what the fundraising dollars should go for and shouldn't go for. Unfortunately, I had a, a terrific co-president that I was working with, and um, and he felt the same way. He was just much more frugal, okay, or or just didn't believe you should just give because everything's asked for. It was really more of a priority situation with the PTA. When you go to school board meetings uh, where they're discussing the budget, do you think that it's uh, somewhat of a contrived performance? I have to say that I always, always believed, particularly when the kids were little, the whole mantra that it's for the kids, it's for the benefit of the entire district and, you know, your home values, all that stuff. But there comes a point of no return and there comes a point of crossroads where I think there could be better judgment as far as how those dollars are spent. Sometimes, and this is not just this school district, it's any school district, you point out gaps in the system that should be corrected, that should have been corrected years ago. And certain gaps, are it, they're not corrected. As a parent, I I find that very frustrating. Um, There was a a woman that spoke at one meeting, I'll never forget it. And she said, it's getting to the point where I can't afford to be paying tutors to fill in the gaps for my three or four children. And, you know, because it becomes very costly. So I don't really think the needs of the entire community uh, looked at, and they should be. I can honestly say that even when I was a parent, I never believed in the mantra, you know, you just always vote yes. You always have to look at the budget. You always have to look what's in there and you have to determine if everything in there is really 
warranted. And again, maybe because I didn't come from unlimited funds. I didn't come from a trust fund. You know, I don't I don't know that world. Okay, so to me, I like to know where every dollar and cent is going. So it's it's very, very frustrating with those budgets. And I'm tired of hearing the mandates and, and this, that, and whatever. And coming from the private sector with my career in the private sector, I had to contribute to my 401k, my, my separate IRA from the company I had to fully put in. So civil servant, whatever you want to call it, public sector world, I didn't know about because I never worked in it. But you know what? If I could turn back the clock, I, I would have done that. Because the, because we're not you know the private sector is really has lost so much ground as far as what we're able to to save and the costs that are associated with it. When I was on the school board, we had a line item among dozens and dozens, hundreds, thousands of line items. One was for five hundred Bunsen burners, and I questioned it, and I was looked at like, well, why are you questioning this? I said, well. How is it in one year you can go through 500 Bunsen burners? Well, it's a post hole. It's a line item. What school uh, finance people do is they move budget um, monies around within the context of the budget. So you will approve 500 Bunsen burners, but they're not buying 500 Bunsen burners. It gets put into another category. So if you want to challenge this category, that money will wind up in another category. Don, you wanted to comment on what Agatha said. Well, yeah, and back in the day, the social compact was if you worked for the civil service, you would never become Jeff Bezos, but you did have job security, you had a pension, and you had certain benefits that were not available to you. This has been turned on its head in the past 20 years, thanks to union power, especially as it's done in New York State and in California and Chicago, which uh, Illinois faces some really serious problems thanks to its civil service unions. So actually, the situation has been reversed. Um, just anecdotally, I went to Great Neck South when I was a kid, and I always remarked on the car parking lots where these kids' parking lot in the senior class was filled with GTOs and 442s and nice cars, and the teachers' parking lot always had Volkswagens and little Renaults and small compact cars that were very economical, and the teachers had little uh, blazers with the leather patches on their elbows. And now the situation is reversed. The parents come with uh, bad cars, and the teachers have the better cars in the lot. So uh, they seem to be getting the best of both worlds these days. I've often thought that in previous times, civil servants were, were given um, what private sector had, all three, because private sector takes a risk. There's a risk and a reward. So private sector had high salaries, good 401ks, and they guaranteed their own jobs because they were risk takers, business owners, if you will. I'm, I'm netting it out. I'm generalizing. And in the in the public sector, you had two of those three. You you had uh, usually you had a guarantee of a job, like you said, and a decent pension. Now they want high salaries too. My rule: if you're private sector, if you're public sector, and you're not taking a risk for for what you're doing. You're not a business owner. You get two out of three of those things, period, end of story. Pick two. You only get two. It's been turned on its head. It needs to go back. If it doesn't go back, we're all screwed. That's the net net of it. That is the net net of it. In my opinion, if, if you're not taking a risk, you're not entitled to all three of those items, period. There's people in the public sector that will disagree with me. I don't care. They're wrong. That's the way I feel. And I think I'm not the only one who feels like that. Steve, where do we go forward from this? I think more conversation, more enlightenment of the public, 
um, the dirty little secret that no one in public in the in the public political world wants anyone to really know is what we already know. It's not a dirty little secret. It's just they want to hide it on, uh, under the covers. The real power doesn't lie with the politician, per se. It lies with the people. You've seen it in this county when they had the camera situation. Everybody rose up in anger over that. And within four weeks, that problem was resolved because you had, you had judges, you had school teachers, you had business people, you had everybody getting tickets. And everybody said, what's going on? Is this another tax? So they put a stop t to that. You've seen that occasionally happen when either it's a health and safety issue sometimes or when it's a, a situation where people are getting bombarded with an instantaneous tax that came out of nowhere. People can rise up, but they have to do it. And if we don't talk about it, nothing will change. Red light cameras is a common denominator. Everyone can be affected by this. But if you challenge funding for schools, it's challenging mom, apple pie, right. and the American flag. This is somehow un-American. It's complicated, but it's, it's not impossible. They did it in New York City. I'm a graduate of Brooklyn Tech, one of the top eight schools in the world. Has a better reputation than Harvard. Some would argue that. But what they can do is take the money that they save if they do the right thing with it on Long Island, create some STEM schools here. We only have one or two of them, maybe, that are qualified to be STEM schools. It's a great thing. There's a lot of talented kids out there who are not being, whose needs are not being addressed because the STEM schools don't exist. Mm -hmm. They exist in programs all over the place, but put a school together where you could send these kids to. There's a lot of ways to solve the problem. People have to, A, want to solve the problem, and they have to understand the problem. But if you don't talk about it and you don't get people riled up, nothing is going to change, period, end of story, full stop. So you have to talk about it. You have it's I mean, there are places in this country where they where they still maintain districts like New York City, for example. But it's a more homogenous governing faction that rules the districts. Some people say that's bad. Some people say that's good. You know, Long Island's the most segregated area in, in the United States, or one of them. And I think part of that reason is because, call me crazy, but I think it's because of the way the schools are run. I don't mind paying my taxes, my school taxes. I never did. I just don't like, to, to Agatha's point, I just don't like what they do with the money. Agatha, where do you see this going? I've said this on other issues before, uh, and I definitely ag agree with you about unsustain unsustainability. Um, there is many people think that sky is the limit, and sky is not the limit. And I, and I don't, you know, from the the lowest wage earner to the the wealthiest person, the, everybody has a ceiling for what they can afford to pay, and it truly isn't unlimited. And I think that the island as a whole is at a crossroads now. I mean, I know I won't see it in my lifetime, but there really needs to be consolidation, like you referred to. There absolutely has to be. I think it was in Illinois where they did do this massive consolidation. It was. It was Illinois, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, just the amount, the cost savings, you know, and of course there were people before that fought and, oh, it can't, but it did realize the cost savings that was needed. I mean, I just imagine things 
this is very interesting because I had said actually said this to a few people not that long ago when I started to be aware of all this high density building. I, I'm not I have no problem with change. But if you want to build apartment buildings, I believe on Long Island, they should be tastefully done. Garden apartments are lovely. You know, cap maybe three stories, four stories. Like sometimes you see upstate similar and similar areas where they fit into the neighborhood. They're very tastefully done. I do not approve of high density, I'm going to call high rise. If we wanted this to look like a city, that's that's where it's going to go. I personally do not like that look. And one of the reasons I think people feel justified when my family moved from the Bronx and Queens was justified in paying taxes here. And back then they weren't what they are now. The justification was, I want my land. I want my house. I, I don't want to live in a city environment. If I want to live in a city environment, I'll stay in the Bronx and Queens. So I have a problem with that high density building, not only aesthetically, but also, this is really the kicker. I just saw in the post yesterday, and I had read an article online not that long ago, and I said, oh my God, to me, this seems exactly what's going on. Because government, whatever level, doesn't want to reduce their budgets to take the, to make the tax burden less, okay? I mean, you mentioned the word cut, and it's like you're looked at like you're from another world, okay? Which in the private sector, you don't get a raise. You have to learn how to cut. So... The thing is, is that these two articles were talking about the high density is a form of governmental control. It's controlling people saying, well, you can't afford to pay $30,000 in taxes, so you need to downsize and move into these apartments. The same with the young people. I know plenty of young people that their goal is to buy a house with land. They'll start off as an apartment. That used to be the transition. You start off with an apartment, you buy a starter house, and then the house, you know, a little bit bigger house. So I was shocked reading these two articles about exactly they want to be able to control you. They want to to be able to assess your moves. Like another thing is this whole 55 and over community garbage. Okay, and I'm going to call it garbage because I laugh every time I see it. And I know the builders are making money. Obviously that. My husband knows we are never, ever going into one of those places. Never. I told him, if we move, we're going to go to some place where I'm still have a smaller house with the land. I'm not going into one of these communities. I don't want to be living in a communal place. And people don't realize it. They they the marketing in this country is is amazing. I mean, if you say it enough, people believe it. And that's what's scary. And the fact that those and I've only read two and I'm I'm eager to read more, but the fact that those two articles really hit on the control aspect really was very scary to me and people don't even realize it right from under their feet, how they're being controlled. And, and that's why com communication and information and conversation has to continue because if it doesn't, none of those prospective people will really get the proper information to make an informed decision about where they want their lives to go. Which is, and you see it in the in in the in. Tell me if I'm wrong, Bill, because you because you're a media expert. Uh, the the media tends to feed us what they want to feed. Yes, and you have to search like you found those. You have to search for some. You have to to, to get the news today. You probably have to go to six different sources just to find out what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. Don, you want to summarize? Yeah, just to summarize, um, this is an issue I think that's been dormant. I think that people are golden to thinking that the more they spend, the more they get. 
And it's not right. true, especially since the more you're spending is really going into headcount, salary, and benefits, and not for the quality of the education, which is determined more by other factors besides the school that they go to. And that's the myth that has to be dispelled. The, right. the, the enshrinement of the quote-unquote good school has to be broken apart before we can move forward into this because it is too much ingrained in our culture here on the island. If you can obliterate that, then we can start looking at this thing with some clarity. Thank you, Don, Steve, and Agatha. I'm Bill Moser, and I've been talking with Donald Arett of Roslyn. You can read Donald's commentaries in the Roslyn Times. Also with us was Steve Warshaw of Glenhead. Steve is a real estate broker with Realty Connect. And Agatha Nadell of Brookville. Agatha is a community activist. The podcast is That's Interesting. That's Interesting is a production of Moser Media and is recorded at LIU Studios at Long Island University in Brookville, New York. Our post-production engineer is Chris Maffei. I'm Bill Moser. Thanks for listening, and have the best day of your life. Rome once fell, and all great civilizations do. Is America falling? Could we be doing more? Some say it's because we have stopped focusing on learning and understanding what it means to be a good citizen. That's what this podcast is all about. If Civics is Dead, what happens next? Subscribe to Civics is Dead on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice, or visit wcwp.org slash civics is dead.